looking forward to uh, continuing in our session here of uh, looking at Luke's gospel. And today we're working on Luke chapter 12. Um, I remember some time ago I was studying the fear of God and wondering about that, listening to that hymn just right now. um, It seems that we're talking about these incredible things about God. And... uh, uh, Eva, would you do me a favor and just close those doors? Yeah, would you do that, please? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and uh, I put something up on Facebook. I was on Facebook in those days, and and I put uh, something up on on Facebook about. Um, how I'd been studying about the fear of God and and how valuable and good that was. And one of my friends uh, wrote back to me saying that that was a load of nonsense because perfect love casts out fear. And I had nothing to do with this fear. And, and I'm, I, w- I was taken aback by it. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking at the issue of standing in the presence of, of the God who created all of this universe. And even if he is one who sits down and says to me, I love you, that in itself is so awe-inspiring that he would be at all interested or concerned about who I am. I'm wondering, how would I stand in the presence of one in whom there's no darkness, there's just purity, there's no sin. There's no, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there going, how would I not be trembling in his presence? Not because I'm afraid of a punishment that he's going to give me, but because of, of his, his power and influence that is directed towards each one of us in an incredible way. That is absolutely amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. And I look at the other side, which says perfect love casts out fear. There's a different kind of fear that that's addressing. There are fears in our life that each one of us face. Um, We were having a discussion in the car this morning, coming up here, and... uh, the, the truck in front of us decided abruptly to turn and pulled off the road. And the alarm in the car, because we we're going too fast and getting too close, goes off. And Jan shouts, Brad, <laughs> hit the brakes. And I'm sitting there going, um, yeah, that can be a fearful moment. You know, you, you're not wanting to... Uh, plow into the car ahead of you, you you are struck by a different kind of fear that we all have experienced, I'm sure, at different times in our lives. And that fear can come from emotional things. It can come from uh, a struggle of trying to figure out how we can, you know, pay the next bill. It can be a, a struggle with 
How do we get along with our friends or our neighbors, our family members? And there can be issues that rise up within us that cause a different kind of fear than the fear of standing in the presence of God. And I, I look at those two different kinds of fear and I realize that God has a response and an answer for both. He, he is not unaware of it. And the interesting thing is, during these last few chapters of Luke that we've been looking at, we have seen that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and he's stopping in all these towns and villages along the way, and different things are happening and one of the things that is happening is that there is a rising tendency on the part of the elites of society, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the Sadducees, that these people are rising up and becoming envious, jealous, upset with the way that Jesus is drawing in large crowds of people and at the same time is exposing the inner realities that are present in their hearts. And they don't like it. And so going from just Jesus being an annoyance and maybe we want to find out who he is, this is starting to rise to anger, to real hatred that eventually is going to lead. You see the, this this climbing hatred and evil that's rising up upon the parts of some of the people against Jesus, and it's gaining in intensity until he actually gets to Jerusalem, and eventually they are uh, pulled together, enough people with enough anger and hatred in their hearts for who Jesus is, that they have this uh, terrible, terrible court uh, apparently seeking justice. And it's, it's a, a sham that leads to Jesus being crucified. It doesn't just happen. It's not something that, that happened in the last week when Jesus was in Jerusalem. It's something that is building over time. And this... This building up over time is something that we saw at the end of chapter 11. We saw how just one event of healing one man who was mute led to scores of people being attracted to Jesus and then a Pharisee invites him to eat with all these other uh, social elites, the lawyers and Pharisees, and he comes out and he nails them on the issues that are dealing with them. And that's where chapter 12 begins, and we'll start reading there at verse, verse 1. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, 
Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before the Son of Man shall, uh, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. May the Lord bless to us an understanding of his word. Well, isn't it interesting that when Jesus leaves this meal with all those Pharisees and lawyers and they're all upset, he comes outside and the first thing that we discover is that the crowd hadn't left while he went to eat. But indeed, the crowd has increased to thousands who are stepping on top of each other. <laughs> I mean, this is quite an incredible thing. We only saw one man get healed, and now we've got these crowds gathering in that are keen to hear what Jesus has to say. How do you imagine the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to eat, or the lawyers, or the other Pharisees that were there, whom he had just exposed as being basically hypocrites, not being clean on the inside, but they are doing things out of selfish ambition. They're, they've got their, their own agendas and they're using their power and their influence to accomplish what they want to do. And Jesus has just exposed that. And now he leaves the meal and here are people tripping over one another to get in to hear what Jesus has to say. I bet not a single one of those lawyers or of those Pharisees in all of the impassioned preachings and sermons and, and, and whatever they have done in the past ever had a crowd like that. And I can imagine, I could just sit there and imagine on the inside that they are sitting there starting to seethe. Why does this guy get all that attention when he's not even one of the educated elite. I mean, he's a carpenter's son. Who does he think he is? 
I mean, what, what has he got that we haven't got? I mean, can you understand that they're sitting there getting angrier and angrier on the inside, and, and probably they, they, you know, if they lived today, we probably would have recommended that they go for anger management you know, therapy, that they, they probably needed to go see a therapist. You know, they, they're struggling because somebody else is having more success than they are. And you can see how their planning and scheming on the inside is starting to, to grow and increase as they're wanting to find a way to get rid of this man who has shown them up. Even though Jesus did it in as kind a way as possible to let them know what they were really like, that they weren't fooling God with their outward appearances and their outward claims. Interesting is that in the face of this, Jesus doesn't turn to the multitudes, nor does he turn to address the Pharisees and lawyers, but he turns to his disciples and he starts to teach them something about how to deal in times of persecution because he knows that they are going to go through similar persecutions that he is going through and he wants them to have a preparation in their lives for how do you deal with what is going to happen down the road. Now later on, when we get into Acts of the Apostles, which is the second half of the book that Luke writes, he actually goes into all the struggles that the disciples are going to have when they're they're faced with similar things after the day of Pentecost. Their lives are going to be Transform. So this is really critical information for them to have to prepare for their future. And he comes at a time as they can observe and they're witnessing both the jealousy and the envy of, of the elites, but at the same time they see what God is doing for the multitudes through Jesus and they have already seen him in transfiguration, they know that Jesus doesn't deserve the kind of treatment that he's getting. All right. Well, he turns to them, and I think this is valuable, uh, important instruction for each one of us. And I, I, I love it that as I go through it, that he deals with three primary things that we need to be aware of as he begins this instruction. The first thing that he deals with is the reason and the purpose for the core deception that the Pharisees are presenting. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He do, I mean, he explains what the leaven is. He goes on, which is hypocrisy. And I would sit there and I would say, well, why don't you just say beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? (laughs) I mean, that would be my question is why do you use this picture of bread being, being kneaded and made? Why is that the case? 
And the reason for that is that you only put a little bit of yeast into all the flour. I know that because I've watched my wife. When we first got here to North Carolina from Germany because we didn't have any German bread to buy at the stores, the first thing she made me get her was a mill. And then I would order these big 50-pound buckets of wheat, and I had to mill the wheat, and then she made the bread. And we had good bread, I'm telling you. That was delicious bread. I I love the bread that she makes, especially when it comes out of the oven. You put butter on it, and it just melts into that. Oh, man, I mean, forget the toast. And then she makes her own strawberry jam or blueberry jam that comes out out of the fields right around here. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. And in the midst of, of this, he says, the leaven, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is like the little bit of yeast that you put in to make the entire bread rise up. The leaven of the Pharisees begins with a simple lie, a simple compromise of your values, a simple compromise of the truth, a simple compromise that you begin to tell yourself is okay. You you might even today begin to think, well, it's only a little sin, it's only a little white lie that I'm telling, but it's okay because God will forgive me for it. So you learn to live with the little white lie and forget how those things will grow. Not only do they grow just because there is a a little bit of an untruth that's there, but you become so used to its presence in your life that when it grows and you try to protect it from other people seeing what you're like, you actually are willing to tell a bigger lie in order to protect yourself. And those lies come to the point that you actually begin to believe it. Being the director of a uh, missions organization in, uh, in Germany, I told people, beware, I told all of our missionary candidates, beware of believing your own newsletters. <laughs> and the reason for that is you're writing your newsletters to your supporters And so you put your best foot forward. And so you tell all the good stories that are happening to you and you're not telling them all the struggles that you're going through and all the problems at home and the struggle of learning the language and the struggle with the culture and the people that you got angry at and the people got angry at you. You're only telling them one side of the story. Don't believe your own newsletters because you'll end up believing something false about yourself. And the same thing happens with hypocrisy because hypocrisy, let me just read this, i got to put my reading glasses back on, is a pretense of having, it's a pretense of having a virtuous character, moral or religious beliefs or principles that one does not really possess. You are pretending that you are truthful when you're not. You are pretending that you are pure when lust 
has actually corrupted your soul. You are pretending that you are what you are not. And it started not with just suddenly one day waking up and starting to be evil. That's not how it started. I remember going to a maximum security prison and meeting uh, a man who uh, had become a Christian in jail. And, uh, and I, I asked him one day, I said, how, how did you get here? And he said, it started by stealing my employer's pencils at work. I said, what? He said, yeah, you, you go to work and you've got the pencils that the employer provides you with. And, and I would use the pencil and then I would just stick it in my pocket, forget about it, take it home. And then I got to the idea where I felt like because I was using it at work, it belonged to me. It was mine. And as I kept on growing in that concept that these things are mine or they are owed to me or I should be having it, I didn't earn it, but it belongs to me. He said that one day I woke up in, in, in a county jail and read the newspaper it said that I had been arrested for armed robbery and kidnapping. And he said, but that wasn't me. I'm, I'm not that. That's not who I am. He said, but it led to the point that we went in to rob a bank and I had a gun. And when the police showed up, I grabbed one of the tellers. <laughs> and before you knew it, he was in jail for life. But he said it started with the pencil. It started where I believed that something was mine that was not. And that's what leaven does. That's what believing hypocrisy does so that you get to the point and when Jesus had exposed the impurity in the lives of the the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers, they didn't like being exposed and their dark thoughts and dark deeds being brought to the light. And rather than doing what you and I have done and we need to do, which is get on our knees and repent before God and say, Lord, forgive me, they found ways to hide it and protect their reputations not knowing that having a reputation with God is much more valuable. So he says you need to understand that where things go wrong is with the little things, the little foxes that destroy the vine. It's the little things in life that when we start to believe them can bring about great destruction down the road. Beware of the leaven. That's what hypocrisy is like. It's like leaven. And that's a beautiful picture, I think, of how we can understand that things that we do in secret where we think nobody knows anything about it, God, who sees all things, says it's going to come to the light. Now, if you've done anything personally, just word of advice, if you've done anything that 
you shouldn't have done and you're ashamed of to be brought to the light, bring it to the light right now. Ask Jesus to forgive you and to change your heart and to change your activity. Don't do it anymore. Stop doing that and start doing what's right. Okay? I mean, that's, that's how you deal with hypocrisy if it shows up in your life. All right, so the first thing he says, the problem that's going to be facing you is people who are like this, who believe that they are doing the right thing by persecuting you. Paul is a great example of that as he persecuted the church, thinking he was doing it for God. Now, the second part that comes up here is that he talks about fear in the next uh, four verses. From verses 4 to 7, fear is mentioned five times. He talks about how they are not to be afraid, and he ends with, do not fear. But in the middle of all of this, he says, now, I want you to know that there is a difference here between the fear of men and the security that you're going to find in God. There is a major difference between these two things. And when you understand that your security is to be found in who God is, you will not be brought down and destroyed by the fear that you have or what people think about you or what people are going to do to you or the fear that you're going to have when they claim that they're going to do this, that, and the other. You'll be able to stand up to that in the day of trouble because you know in whom you have believed. And the beauty of this is that he points out that you need to understand something about the character and nature of God and eternity because when the the scales are finally going to be revealed and God is going to be the judge of the living and the dead, you want to not be afraid of the one who can kill your body now, the one who has a chance to destroy you now, the one who is going to tell lies about you now. Don't be afraid of him. Be afraid of the one who, after you die, has the ability to put you in hell. Now, that, that puts things in perspective. If I've got to make a choice between being afraid of you or being afraid of God, let me be afraid of God. And by making that choice, I discover something. I discover I don't need to be afraid of God in that way at all. But it also sets me free of being afraid about what you think about me. It sets me free to be able to love those who disagree with me. It gives me the ability to love people who have a different opinion than I have. It gives me the ability to love people regardless of how they treat me. I still have the ability because I have my security, not from them, but my security is in God. I can be set free from what they think in order to love them. 
<laughs> I sit there, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh because this is incredibly serious, but I'm sitting there saying, God, thank you that you open up this incredible security that you want to give me, not just for this life, but for eternity. And he goes on to say, listen, don't you know that sparrows are sold for virtually nothing? I was sitting there with my son-in-law this week thinking about this, and I said, you know, um, when you go to court here, they have, uh, they place value on human body parts, you know, so that if, a, if you lose an arm, then you can sue somebody for so much money, and if you lose this or if you lose a life. And I said, what's a, what's a human life worth? And I said, I just found out what a human life is worth. <laughs> uh, it's worth many sparrows, so it might be worth about 25 cents. <laughs> if two sparrows go for two cents, <laughs> you know, I mean, just found out what life is worth. It's not a whole lot. I, I, it was just, I, I guess I laugh at my own jokes, you know. But the truth is this, that we place no value on the sparrows. That, that much, the two cents, is our value that we put on the sparrows. But not one sparrow goes to its death that God is not aware of. God places different value on sparrows than we do. That's the issue here. God is concerned about sparrows. And if he's concerned about sparrows, how much more valuable are you than sparrows that go for what we consider such a low price? How much more valuable are you to God? That's the issue here, is that you can't place a value on a human soul that God loves. As a matter of fact, Jesus places an entirely different value on you. He's willing to give his life for you. That's how much you're valuable to him. The approach that God takes to looking at the value of human life is far greater than the value that we would place on it. And then he comes around and he says, listen, listen, this is an issue where you need to understand that God is more interested in who you are and his love and his grace is available to you in your life, here and now and for all eternity. God is for you. He's not against you. God is interested in you. He's not disinterested in who you are. God is interested in the trials and struggles you're going through. He has not abandoned you. God is interested in you. His primary, his primary core to his character is love. It doesn't deal away with any of his other virtues, but every other virtue is going to be controlled by his desire and yearning to love. That's who God is. And when we come to understand that God's love for me 
is real and I can trust his love for me. I don't have to give it up. I don't have to try to imagine it, but I dwell in the, in the hands of the one who cares about who I am. I'm in the palm of his hand. He holds my time and my life in his hands. Oh my goodness. My security is there and not in what people think about me. It's not what the social elites think about me that's important. It's what does God think about me. You see, the, the focus here is if you want to understand how to deal with trials and tribulations and sorrows that are coming your way, He's telling the disciples, you are going to go through this. You're going to see it, how they treat me. It's going to be just a few more days and you're going to experience this, how they treat me. And if they treat me that way, they're going to treat you the same way. You can, uh, you can put your life down on it. And when it happens, I want you to be aware how it comes about through hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is going to lead to a place where you have to choose. Do you want to be concerned about the hypocrites and what they think because God thinks differently about them or do I, do I place my security in the hands of the one who's willing to give his son for me? I mean, that becomes a major issue that they are going to have to face not too many days from now. And that's what he's dealing with here. The third thing is, it's an interesting thing he deals with what are the words that we have to say? And, and he talks about how there's going to be words spoken against me. He says, I'm going to forgive them of that. People speak that about me, lying about me. It's not going to affect me. I'm going to forgive them. As a matter of fact, that's some of the last words he, he speaks from the cross is, Father, forgive them. They haven't a clue what they're doing. I mean, he, he, he is going to live that. But he goes on to say, but if you blaspheme, if you speak against the Holy Spirit. I know that many of us struggle with what does that mean? Well, I want to tell you something about how I deal with that. I don't want to say anything against the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Period. I don't want to run the risk. I don't want to know what the limit is. When have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? When did I cross that line? I don't want to even get near that line. I just don't want to speak anything against the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing about this particular passage is this. He says, when they speak against the Holy Spirit... They won't have forgiveness. Then he turns and he says, but when you stand on trial, don't prepare what you're going to say. Because at that moment, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. So the, the activity of the Holy Spirit is that he is going to instruct you what to say at the time that you need to say it. When you're standing up and people are falsely accusing you of things that are untrue, 
He's going to tell you whether you keep your mouth shut or if you do open it, what do you say? And that comes because I spent my life walking and talking with him. I know his voice. I know when he is prompting me. I know when something has come up that I need to do or say. And I know when I do do it, it has good results. When I don't, I I have missed opportunities. (laughs) That's who the Holy Spirit is. He works in his gentle way to, to draw us into relationship with the Father. And he does it by leading and guiding and directing us. And that's, that's his job. He's telling his disciples, the first thing is beware of the little things that people may do that become major lies. Keep your eyes and ears open and listen for that. The second thing is, don't be afraid of them. Find your security, discover your security in the one who loves you and cares for you for eternity. There's no person in this world that can guarantee you anything after you die, but Jesus can. And the third thing is, when you stand up in the face of difficulties, don't be concerned about them. Listen to what God is going to instruct you by the Holy Spirit as to what you do and say, and he will be there with you in the moment. It's not a matter of working up some great big trial strategy. No, at that moment, God's going to tell you what to say. I look back on several instances in my life where People have come to me, even recently when I rejoined Facebook, somebody wrote to me, he said, I remember when I was just a teenager, you said this to me, and it's been uh, a major driving force in the rest of my life. I went, that was 40 years ago. (laughs) That was 40 years ago. I haven't a clue of what I said 40 years ago. I'm sorry. But you see, it was something that God had put within me at that moment that was important for that person. That they could look back on and say, that was valuable and important. We need those kinds of experiences where God is leading us and we're responding to him because that kind of confirmation in our lives is going to give us the ability to trust him when the going gets really tough. And whether we're dealing with a personal issue or other issues, we are in a position of grace in the presence of God where at the time where we need him to speak to us, he brings the right words. He brings the right words. Whether they're words of comfort, words of strength, words of encouragement, words that are gentle, words that are bold, we don't need to be afraid of the result of those words because we find our security in God and not in the fear of people. I love this, that Jesus, knowing what's coming up, seeing 
the, the seeds of hatred that are brewing there at this meal that he just had with those Pharisees and lawyers turns to his disciples. And I'm sure some of the crowd that was stepping over each other to get there heard some of this as well, that they heard how Jesus was preparing them. How do you stand in the day of trial? How do you stand in the day of persecution? How do you stand in the time when things are difficult for you? And he gives them a clear answer and direction for that in their lives. If it was good enough for the disciples, I think it's good enough for us. I think that if he would spend the time telling them what they needed to do to prepare, that's good advice for you and me. Don't give in to the little lies that people say trying to protect their reputations. Beware of that. Fear God. Don't fear what other people can do to you. Put your trust in Him. Put your trust in Him. And finally, listen to what the Holy Spirit teaches you. That's what you say. Don't respond to your inner desire to strike back, to speak against. No, no, don't, don't, don't listen to those things. You listen to what the Holy Spirit says, and you respond in that way. He'll tell you what to say and how to say it. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your presence here with us, that you want to teach us how to find our security in you and not be afraid of the fear that men could impose upon our lives. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.